Today on Podcast by the Bay, we're speaking with whistleblower Aaron Davis, formerly of the NRA. I'm already upset at the emotional tone of NRA and not having empathy, and I just kind of keep seeing that, and I finally am able to get out of the organization. And, and I'll make a point there. I know others who are not able to get out of NRA because their name has been blacklisted. They're good employees. They're not extremely political. Um, like the leaders are, and they have trouble finding jobs. To give his perspective on the guns, political atmosphere, and the culture at the National Rifle Association. It was very much, we're, at, we're in battle. This is, I would look at it more as trench warfare. You know, neither side's winning, but we're going to hold the line. And we're not going to go to the other side and, and make any sort of peace or compromise. I don't think NRA's always been like that. I think it, but since the late 70s, that's been their main priority. All coming up on today's episode of Podcast by the Bay. Stay tuned. Podcast by the Bay is a production of Bay City Communications and is sponsored by Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com and also Highway Soul Productions www.highwaysoul.com And now, another podcast by the Bay. Okay, welcome to Podcast by the Bay. We thank you for being with us. We thank you for downloading this episode. And we thank you for spreading the word to all your friends out in podcast land. We definitely appreciate it. And so today, we're going to speak with Aaron Davis. And Aaron is formerly of the NRA, but he's a current whistleblower, has speaking with many of the media outlets, including the New Yorker. And we're going to find out more about the culture of the NRA and some of the insight of actually what makes the NRA tick. So welcome to the show, Aaron. We definitely appreciate you being here. All right. Thanks so much, Andre. I'm looking forward to this. So just a little background. Originally, what was your relationship with guns growing up? Oh, well, see, guns were everywhere. They were on the they were in the house, on the shelf, on the tractor, in the truck. Um, and they were just a normal part of life. But I, I saw them as something to be respected, uh, which you'll find a lot when you talk to people in, in, in rural areas. Uh, there's something to be respected. You only touch them if you go through training. Um, and you have so, usually you have someone with you, like a, like a father or a father figure or a grandfather. Um, and it was just as normal as having a vehicle the fact that you would have guns. There was never any question. You didn't even think about rights. Should you own this? Should you not? It's just kind of there. So actually, that's a great question. How did you learn how to handle guns? Yeah, it was it was a good father-son exercise. So um, I would go with him on hunting trips um, and watch uh, for, for several years um, just to kind of see how things go. And then when I get old enough, which would... Uh, for a lot of people, it would seem way too early, but around, a, I'd say, 10 years old, then I, I'm taught how to shoot a rifle. 
Um, pistol shooting would come much later, but rifle is something you can you sit down on a bench, you can have more control over it, um, and it's it's a safer kind of thing to do for someone who's a kid. Um, so it was just that's part of what I would say is um, like almost like a male initiation rights, like the rites of passage. Uh, you being able to handle a firearm is saying among the the group um or our our davis clan that you know you've achieved some sort of um new level of manhood um so the the gun itself the symbol of the gun becomes part of that very special tender moment for a, a young man's life so so how did you end up becoming affiliated and really working with the nra you started with guns you started with their background, but how did you actually end up becoming affiliated with the organization? Well, I, at first I was a special education teacher, um, and I dealt with behavior disorders. So I was on the more service social end of, you know, of the community. Um, and I didn't, I wasn't very good at it. Um, so I left that ended up moving to, um, DC, with a friend uh, to live in his basement and I got a temporary job with, with the NRA, uh, which was like data entry, uh, folding envelopes, um, just the, the, you know, the basic kind of like grunt work, I guess, of, of a nonprofit. Uh, so, but at the same time, this was like the first time I'd been in a building that big. So I come from the, I come from the rural area. There's not many buildings, uh, it's just a whole different pace and in quite a transformation in terms of trying to adapt to a, what I thought was a very different culture than even gun culture was that I grew up with. So, so what was your role and position there when, when you got there? Well, so when I first got there, I'm stuffing envelopes, I'm writing letters. I start writing more letters and then I start managing people who are writing letters because see letters to the NRA is a big part of their political speech. Um, so it's it's one of the biggest ways, pro- perhaps the largest way that they communicate uh, with their members. Uh, you, it's not like you know here in San Francisco where you everyone's connected digitally. Uh, these are folks that they read the mail, they get the letters, they respond to them, um, they get the telemarketing calls. But anyway, I I started writing thank you letters, and over time I ended up writing letters for. Um, most of the upper level of NRA, including the CEO, Wayne LaPierre. Um, so it's just something I kind of grew into. Then they, then I was in charge of our whole donor recognition society, um, which was trying to persuade people to give really big gifts to the NRA. Um, and from that, I went on to being the Midwest Director of Fundraising. Um, that was my last position at NRA. And so they called you the Ring of Freedom Manager. Is that correct? Yeah, that's a fun title because, you know, people are like, Ring of Freedom Manager, that's not a title. Uh, but what it was was, you know, we were doing prospect research or um, and writing thank you letters, doing donor recognition, doing events, a lot of the uh, typical nonprofit kind of recognition ceremonies. Um, so it was a lot of moving around nationally, seeing things, doing events in different places, Um taking trips. I mean, the whole big fundraising thing was, um, was quite the, 
machine. And that, so we didn't have a major gifts fundraising office of any substance when I first got there in 2005. And I was there kind of the first day they, they kind of overhauled things and said, we're going to go into this major gifts um, game, if you will, like just like a university. We, we, we hired a university fundraiser to come teach us how to fundraise. How do we get $25,000 gifts? How do we get million-dollar gifts? Um, so I was there through the transition of seeing um, the fundraising office pretty much change. So. so so this is 2005. You're starting into this organization. And how initially did your did the, their vision really fit into your ethics? Um, so you get the in, impression when you're there that you're fighting this very much this like, light versus dark, good versus evil, um, bad, good, you know, this is, this is true. This is not, you, you get into this culture where, um, you just have a profound respect for tradition and history. So at NRA headquarters, there's a beautiful museum that tells the story of America, um, albeit, it's not the same story that everyone's telling about America, but it's a very conservative story where here's George Washington, the gun he used. Here's Thomas Jefferson. Here's the first gun ever shot in America. Here's, and they take you through history, the Wild West. Um, here was Charlton Heston's guns. Here's some guns Tom Selleck donated. Um, and, it, and it's just, it makes you feel like you're part of a social movement that's been going on since 1776. Uh, so you don't necessarily get as caught up, if you, especially me, I wasn't in the political office. You don't get as much caught up in the um, in the politics of everything. And I was raised, I was helping write letters, thank you letters, before I was a fundraiser for the foundation, which wasn't allowed to talk about politics. So you've joined this organization. You're part of this fundraising. You're part of the nonprofit section, and. What are some of the observations you see from being a part of this culture? I mean, what are you recognizing? Uh, well, Andre, it was a um, it was kind of a shock to me. It was a surprise uh, because I get to an array seeing uh, it as kind of the uh, the golden temple of go- of gun culture. Uh, you know, these are people fighting for our rights, and and especially, I think what. I came to realize about NRA is it was not it was not so much about your rights as it was about a way of life. So we're protecting a way of life against evil hordes of liberals that are coming to take our guns because they're not only coming to take our guns, they're they're calling us country bumpkins, they're calling us uh, people that don't matter in this new technological society or, or whatever. Um, so you, you get to be like you're on, you, when you get there, you especially feel like you're on, the, you're in this, on the side that is the good guys that are fighting the culture war, uh, that, you know, that comes back from the 1960s when, when a lot of this gun rights became a very politicized issue and especially into the seventies and you're on the good guy side and you're part of a battle, you're part of a war you're one of the soldiers and you kind of step in line with what soldiers are doing. Um, it's not a lot of employee creativity. Um, it's just kind of running the machine 
and we would see like Wayne LaPierre as 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 an idol. He was like our he was a hero to um to almost all of the office. Um so just a very different almost like religious experience uh coming into the NRA. Not not necessarily I didn't know how to accept it as much. Like my my feelings toward it were kind of intention because I'm like wow, this place is is you know being from a southern um kind of background and a small town this is huge um so you know it's it's it was a shock and also something that made me extremely curious at the same well, time well you brought up a great point and you mentioned that it was kind of a way of life and so would you say that most of the people who really were part of the organization, whether it is they're employed or really were part of the representatives, they really bought into this way of life as far as really us against them kind of mentality? Oh, absolutely. I mean, without a question, uh, <laughs> I, I cannot remember during my 10 years there any sort of outreach to the other side um like let's have a panel discussion let's have some sort of summit where we talk with the other side on gun rights it was very much we're at we're in battle this is i would look at it more as trench warfare you know neither side's winning but we're going to hold the line and we're not going to go to the other side and, and make any sort of peace or compromise i don't think NRA's always been like that i think it but since the late seventies, that's been their main priority. Would you feel almost also in your experience, it was kind of a, no matter what at all costs, let's tow this line. Uh, whatever, whatever, when we talk about this way of life, we talk about this, this right protecting this particular, no matter how bad it gets, we need to we need to protect this, uphold this value, what we believe in. Uh, yes, uh, but it's also, in my opinion, and I didn't see this because I wasn't a lobbyist. I think it's that's a strategy. Uh, but there were more extreme presidents of the NRA, such as Neil Knox, who didn't want any gun control whatsoever, no regulations. Um, and I don't know that for a fact, that, but that's, that was kind of his um, M.O. So Wayne is just, he to me, is a political operative. And he understands what motivates people, what raises money. And um, he has a group of people that, that love that idea of, you know, and I think of it as a way like if you're doing social activism, no matter what the issue is, you want to kind of embolden um, a group of people and if you make it like every single day our way of life is under attack and you keep hitting that message and then you scapegoat others on the other side who are trying to take that away you, you create this almost like activist base that's unstoppable and we've seen gun laws follow that and I think a lot of that you know started before Wayne LaPierre but he really perfected that system um, it doesn't mean that they're never open to compromise. We haven't seen that in a while. It's just they're going to follow. They've got this base that's very active that will write congresspeople 
uh, that will go and sign up people to vote, that will do all sorts of things. And it's kind of an unstoppable machine. So even when you know you hear all this bad press on NRA, what they're doing on a state-to-state level and in rural areas hasn't changed. Like it might seem like NRA is losing federally, but they're still strong in so many areas. So you started in 2005. You worked your way up. You got into the organization. You became really the director, uh, you know, ring of freedom manager, somebody who's basically participating in this outreach, fundraising, things like that. Mm -hmm. And then 2012 comes along. What happened? So I was already, I, I had taken a class in World War on World War One history, and much of and my kind of final paper for the class was on propaganda in World War One. And so I always had this question in the back of my mind, like, yeah, NRA uses kind of more extreme speech, but it's not illegal to do so. I mean, it's, it's their freedom of speech uh, to be politically active and say what they believe even though they do it in ways that sound um, very apocalyptic. And I'm just kind of questioning this, like, what are we raising money for? Because on one hand, we are raising money for the the tax-deductible side of NRA, the NRA Foundation, and some other. There's actually like six organizations within NRA, within NRA. And we're raising money for all these organizations and then, but the big push around 2012 is to get Obama out, because you know you'd read the headlines at NRA, the most the least friendly gun president of all time, um, who actually didn't do many gun laws or get or didn't get any passed. But you you hear these things and you're and then I start to see that I feel like I'm in like a 1984 scene at some of these annual meetings where there's such a mass almost riot feeling that we're going to take down all these different forces that, um, and we're going to follow our leader, Wayne LaPierre, and we're going to take down Obama. And you, and you feel the war spirit of this thing. Um, and so I'm kind of questioning, like, was well, this all this true is I meet people that are not, um, into guns and they seem like really nice people. They seem, you know, they respect others. They're good community. Um, they do civic participation. I mean, they're, they're into so many things. And I'm like, and they don't believe this. They're not bad people. But we're making everything like, here's the bad people, here's the good people. And I just, I have trouble with that because I know these other people now. And I have friends that are more liberal. And, you know, I'm just kind of like struggling with this. Like, is this really what life's all about? And then you start to read their rhetoric. And you're like, oh, my God, this sounds like propaganda from like the 1920s um some question it but there's still enough at NRA to draw me there to hold me there because we're fighting for the constitution which in my mind is the very bedrock of everything that we're fighting for and so I'm kind of in this tension and then Sandy Hook happens and the emotion of the moment even at headquarters was so thick you could tell it was like a turning point in our in our society we all thought we were going to lose our jobs this is it this is over nra is going to compromise or they have to it's kind of the way we felt um and for seven days we heard nothing from our leadership 
the offices were dark. Like, sometimes we turned on the lights, uh, but a lot of people weren't even there. People with kids, like my supervisor, she just took her kids out of school, out of fear. And there's this really depressing feel at NRA, as I'm sure there was in the rest of the country. We were having protesters. Nobody knows what's going on, so we're thinking, oh my God, we need leadership here that can help us, that can help the people of NRA, that can help the staff of NRA deal with what they're dealing with, you know, because we're being hated by, on by everyone. And then Wayne gets on TV. It's the first time we'd heard from him as staff. And it gives what I, I see as one of the most unempathetic responses to something that is one of the most horrible things that's ever happened in America. And even and it just didn't feel the empathy there. And he was tone deaf. He ended up blaming everybody else. And I was devastated. I was like, this is wrong. You, you don't treat a national emergency politically. NRA then gets, and it's the craziest thing, NRA picks up a million members after Sandy Hook. And, and for those listeners who remember the situation, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe what he had mentioned is that they wanted to arm the schools, right? They wanted to arm the schools. That was their response on how to deal with the situation was that they wanted all schools to be armed. And I think there was a big announcement saying, we're going to come out with a big announcement. And literally the next day was, Hey, we want all schools to be armed moving forward. And that's really how we're going to propose. Right. Right. That was their solution. So they were, in some way, I mean, it's not like NRA was just the leaders were sitting in a back room somewhere chilling. Um, they were having probably their conversations around Congress, their lobbyists. They were trying to figure out what the best response would be. And to double down was their response and say, well, how dare they not have a school resource officer with a gun or, you know, not that NRA necessarily supports teachers with guns. They allow it, um, but they don't necessarily wade into that too much. Because, I mean, you got to think, the NRA is so politically savvy. And when we hear their rhetoric, we think, oh, they must not know what's going on because it doesn't show the reality of life. But they're very, very, very savvy. Um, I think much more than the than any liberal interest group um, that I know of um, would be. And so for those of you just joining us, we're speaking with Aaron Lee Davis, who's an NRA insider, former uh, employee, Ring of Freedom manager, and someone who is almost, has his own podcast. And so Aaron, um, you can find out more about Aaron and just about his uh, podcast. Um, he's at AaronLeeDavis.com and Patreon slash Golden Guns is uh, his podcast. And so we're speaking with him about his inside in uh, basically being a part of the NRA organization and really what changed. And so we're going to now kind of switch gears. And so this whole Sandy Hook experience, they kind of doubled down and kind of get down to really where they're digging into the trenches, kind of like what you were describing. It's a us against them kind of mentality. It's something where they've determined that this is what they're going to represent. So, all of a sudden, in the last couple of years, we've started hearing out leaks, though, in the media. 
And there's been all kinds of articles about there's issues happening at the NRA, starting with, I believe it was Oliver North, right? As the president gets pushed out. Was that the kind of initial point that something was starting to get amiss? Well, it had been going on um, a little bit well before then. Um, I I had left the organization in 2015 um, and had seen what I thought was unethical behavior um, as far as kind of the blank check that that some people had to do whatever they wanted to in the name of NRA fundraising. So it could be trips um, that aren't necessarily going to raise money. Um, it could be something as simple as, um, well, it sounds simple. but You mean like a vacation? Like a vacation um, but that you say is an NRA fundraising trip. Or as, as the reports came out, here's Wayne LaPierre spent 39000 one day at a suit shop in Beverly Hills, um, which that was more money than I made my first year as a staff member. <laughs> and he billed, he billed that to NRA. And there was another, it was a total of like $275,000. Uh, but you had these sort of things that I could see on the edges. Like you think about the whistleblower uh, now for the, the the trump story um with uh, ukraine and the guy wasn't actually in the room when donald trump said it mm-hmm. but he saw the shady things going on around it and that's really how i felt and from from different things that happened so i came public on the new yorker it took me like a year to build up the confidence because i'm like oh my gosh these guys this is the organization of millions and millions of guns you know here you are you're going to talk against them i used to work there um, and it was just fascinating the way things happened because right after that interview came out, that's when the NRA was just in this huge, unprecedented crisis. Um, it's, it, it, this, not, not necessarily my interview, but Michael Spies of the trace. Um, I was part of that article. He was laying out kind of malfeasance or corruption and self-dealing that was happening at NRA and it seems like Oliver North used that energy to oust Wayne LaPierre, the CEO. So the president of NRA is a volunteer position. And then it, then Oliver North has to resign. And then Wayne LaPierre sues his 30-year-long public relations firm to kind of cover himself. saying, And it gets into these weeds of, of just kind of like self-dealing. Um, so, so let, let me bring it back for a second. Cause I think you brought up a couple yeah. great points. Oh, it, it gets so complex and that's, that's part of the problem, right? It's like people are tired of reading about guns. They're tired about hearing about guns and to get in the weeds of this stuff is just like, it's mind boggling. And I worked there 10 years and there's always something new. Like today, um, there was a story. I don't know if you saw it, um, uh, from NPR did a story and I think it was, on how NRA knew that the Russians, they were working with the Russians to help some business deals with their leaders. Uh, there was a Senate report that took 18 months, and they found all these things. So it's like every day there's a new thing going on. It's, it's just unbelievable. Well, well, that's actually a great point because I think we've heard about that uh, in the election, the 2016 election. There was evidence, and there was direct uh, funding um, from foreigners, 
uh, to the NRA. And that really, it was reported, but it wasn't really picked up in a way that where we felt there was anything more besides the story. And, but I think it's now that you're saying that there's more to the story, I think this is fascinating. So just to paint a picture, you're in an organization, there's, you're recognizing what's going on. There's other people, other staffers are seeing this culture, this, uh, ideology, this just way of the ethics really doesn't kind of fit with what you're represented, what, who you are as a person. So you took the step to say, I'm out, I need to move out. And how, and how did that happen? Right. Well, I moved out into the field to be a field fundraiser and I worked with a lot of donors um, who were leaders in their own right in their communities. And I felt this kind of tear between what donors thought the NRA was and what, um, in my mind, it really was. Um, like, for example, donors' eyes would light up when you would talk about the training and education programs on teaching respect of guns in the Second Amendment. And a lot of them were like, no, I don't want my money to go to politics. And then seeing how all the energy behind fundraising and the entire organization was really a way just to influence politics um, really burnt me. I'm already upset at the emotional tone of NRA and not having empathy. And I just kind of keep seeing that. And I finally am able to get out of the organization. And, and I'll make a point there. I know others who are not able to get out of NRA because their name has been blacklisted. They're good employees. They're not extremely political um, like the leaders are, and they have trouble finding jobs uh, because of the association with the NRA, which I find I find wrong, but I, it's understandable, but I find it wrong. And so just to kind of follow up on your point, currently I've, I've seen that there are a lot of fractions happening, right? Uh, NRA spokeswoman Dana Loesch, um, she kind of left the group I just heard recently. There was a, uh, you know, two other uh, um, uh, board members uh, also who had, had left. Uh, let me get their names. That's uh, Tim Knight, Sean Maloney, and Esther Schneider. Yeah, so it's, there's significant um, issues happening in the organization, um, you know, between the board and the people who are really with the vision. It seems like the vision is completely changed, and people are not willing to be a part of it. Uh, you know, in one way or another. So I, I guess, you know, with your experience, really, you know, ha- have your views changed on really on guns and really how should they be managed um, and, and how so? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> it, um, it has changed. Um, I have spent, since I left four years ago, I've spent a lot of time thinking through it and reading about it. Um, there's a phenomenal book that I would recommend to anyone who's interested in kind of the nuts and bolts of the second amendment called gunfight. Um, and that's by a UCLA law professor named Adam Winkler. And it has been the go-to book for me just to understand historically what's been happening with the second amendment and the NRA. It gets into the, the black Panthers, um, the first gun control legislation was here in California uh, of any substance um, and, and just the history of gun control. And you start to see this picture of 
this really is a political fight in some ways more than it's a principled fight um, that has changed so much over the years. Um, and I just, I cannot wrap my head around or be okay with NRA's rhetoric. And I realize freedom of speech, they can say whatever they want in some ways, but the way they come across as they, they help their, they influence so many people to be hateful, to not join in in civic participation because I'm going to build a wall. I'm going to build these walls around my house, my gates around my house. I'm not going to love others. I'm not going to spend time with others. I'm going to have my guns and protect myself. That's the attitude. And I don't know how that helps America in any way when you're constantly pulling away from society rather than, than kind of leaning in and saying, here's some of the problems with society. No, I'm going to just like go off by myself and I'll do mine and leave me alone. And I don't know how it helps us as a country. And I, so I think as far as guns, that's not something I nec- I definitely have my views on that, but that's not my, my main message. My main message is you got to come together, America. You got to, you got to get together. You got to, you got to be involved in your communities, not less involved. Where does that leave us? Yeah, no, I, I think that's great, great, great insight, um, especially coming from someone who really has kind of seen kind of really what the organization represents and who has, uh, you know, been there um, in the present. Um, and now it's kind of reflected upon really how things have changed. And, and, and you know, recently we've had a lot of these uh, mass shootings, um, and there's been zero, almost zero really political movement as far as actually attaining legislation, right? There's been a lot of attempts, a lot of attempts to try to do things, but not really anything concrete that we've been able to say, this makes sense. And I would say, what is your perspective on that? Because I think that having you you bring it up. There's a lot of political activism happening. Is there a way that actual some common sense, uh, you know, gun laws can happen uh, with the current state that we're in? Hmm. Um, what do you think? Well, <laughs> I always like to ask that question <laughs> when someone asks me because I'm like, well, you well, know, you're asking for societal change. Uh, what do you think? Well, I, I, I think it's a deep question, but I, I, I think, um, uh, in my opinion, I think that we have to start where we're going to have the opportunities to make the biggest change. And I think that there are some easy, I think, wins as far as looking at what types of guns we're using and what really makes the most sense. I mean, I, I grew up, I, I had used guns, um, as far as, uh, you know, I had friends that had rifles and things like that and shotguns uh, when I lived in the country. And basically, you know, I did go into military and where was around AR-15s and I used them and M203 grenade launchers, things like that. But you recognize the relevance of what the point of having a gun is. And I think that that's really where when you start looking at the types of things that need to happen. And it's like, what, what really makes the sense? And it, to me, it just never made any sense why there's these giant weapons of war that are really for mass destruction in the hands of everyday citizens. And, and I never could understand that. And I still, 
I have questions with the, that kind of logic. So when you ask, you know, for, from my perspective, I think that, um, you know, I think that's what kind of stands out as far as a major opportunity. Um, I think you were going to bring up something about the New Zealand um, article. You, you, you had read an article. Uh, yeah, there was a uh, article in GQ, and there was a quote from the um, the writer that he where he said, and it, it kind of hit home to me. He said because there's simply no reasonable argument for arming unsupervised civilians with military weapons, and just this idea that you're you have such a powerful um, weapon, and you can have it by yourself with no one else knowing about it just because you don't have a criminal record or you may have like just a misdemeanor record and you're allowed that much control and that much power over other people's lives is is just wrong to me. And so I'm not against like say people owning these weapons, but the word supervision comes in. And I, I think when you look at the second amendment, it backs me up here because it's saying that, you know, it talks about a an individual right, a the role of the state, and kind of the role of the government, federal government. It's all three in there. But in that right is this idea of regulation and also having the right. Uh, so it's both. And if you don't have regula- regulation on that, that kind of keeps account on your fellow neighbors. We all become scared. We all stay in our houses. We build more walls. Uh, we just get away from each other. And what happens is America dies because there's a lack of civic participation. Well, I've got my gun, and I'm and I'm holding on to my rights, but I'm not going to interact with the community. And, and you don't have to interact with the community. I mean, that is part of democracy. You don't have to be part of it. But we have this, like, we have to look at others in a way that we hold each other accountable in some way. And I'm not saying that's a federal law, but there has to be some sort of policy that allows us to build more supervision around things. It's not even, I'm not even talking about a gun registry, which it might be part of that or might not. It's that we look out for one another and we don't let these independent actors have access to weapons that can kill multiple, multiple people because we know who they are. Yeah. We, we, we need to be in agreement on who we think should own these things. I think that's the first step for, for me at least. Great, great points. Um, I think everybody can agree that there's a lot of opportunity and there is a lot of different strategies. And I think there's practical things that make sense. And I think there are people out there, even politicians. I think you even highlighted it in what you were describing as part of your fundraising and, and part of your reaching out, that there were a lot of members that supported trainings, background kind of uh, trainings, and really to really make sure people are safe handling. I mean, when you look at statistics and, and sort of data and, and you look at the, the people that are, 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 are dying, it's a lot of children that have access to guns when they don't know what they're doing. And unfortunately, right. that is an issue. And people say that there's there things are locked up and things like that, but obviously they're getting in the hands of people who are not understanding on how to use these these weapons. And I think that 
um, unfortunately, um, there, there, there's just so much opportunity for improvement um, to deal with these issues. So yeah, and I and I'll go one more kind of kind of solution. First of all, I think you know gun culture, rural America is not, but what forty six million Americans? It's not a majority, um, but they really believe in this, and they're Americans, and they have this like, and they, they it is part of their life. It is their way of life. It just needs to be regulated better to not allow these things to happen. But the other thing that I'm so interested in is more like guns that have biometric. Uh, technology that they can only be used by the person with a fingerprint um, there we we can open our phones easily but yet we don't want this technology in our guns and i get the fact nra says well not everybody can afford that and that hurts their second amendment rights i, I get that to a degree but the the energy of society doesn't seem to be around buying tasers um what about why aren't there biometric tasers like i had a friend call me yesterday and he's like where can i get a taser where my kid can't pick up the taser and shoot my other kid um but with our technology those things aren't necessarily being supported by venture capitalists um because it's a hard sell people who buy guns think that it's a bad thing to have smart gun technology because that's kind of what the nra has told them that it's just another way to take away and restrict your freedom. But we have technological solutions, and we have policy solutions, and I'd love to see this area, San Francisco, just jump right on in with coming up with better solutions. Like, give me an option. Don't just say, I can have, well, you've got to have this, like, gun that can shoot 11 rounds or 10 rounds. No, give me an option that's safer for my family that's still a self-defense option. Give me those that variety so it's not all about just buying more and more and more guns. Um, so there you go. Well, th- these are great points, Aaron, and we appreciate your time and for really speaking with Podcast by the Bay. And for all the audience members out there and listeners, you can find out more about Aaron uh, at his website, Aaron Lee Davis. And he's also he has a podcast, Patreon uh, slash Golden Guns. You can find out and you can reach it through his website as well. And yeah, just great speaking with you today. And uh, thanks for uh, being here on Podcast by the Bay, Aaron. We definitely appreciate it. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Podcast by the Bay. You can contact us by email at podcastbythebay at gmail.com. Podcast by the Bay is a production of Bay City Communications and is sponsored by Liberty Realty. Liberty Realty, serving the peninsula and surrounding areas since 1986 for all your real estate needs www.liberty-realtyinvestments.com and also Highway Soul Productions www.highwaysoul.com You can follow us on Twitter at Podcast by the Bay as our handle or on Facebook facebook.com slash podcast by the bay and remember you can listen to any of our episodes anytime on any podcast site until next time stay tuned